welcome to the Adapt Me podcast, a brand new podcast where a guest and I discuss a book that has never been adapted, why that's so, and how we would go about it. On this very first episode, I invited someone who was one of the first people to allow me on their podcast. So, because not only that they're super duper awesome, but also wanted to exchange a favor, please welcome the host of the 300 Passions podcast, Zeta Short! Oh, thank you so much for having me on the podcast, Emily. I'm really honored to be selected by you. Oh, oh you're very welcome. I mean, I've always enjoyed your work and, and having been on your podcast in the past, I always had so, I had so much fun with it. Oh, that was terrific. Yeah, so how you been doing? Oh, I've been doing well. I've been looking forward to this and... I just had a hairdresser's appointment, so I think that's been a real confidence booster. Ooh, and I know uh, our listeners can't see it, but her hair <laughs> does look very gorgeous. I will say that. Mm, looking fabulous. And how are you, Emily? Oh, oh I am doing good. If I'm going to be a little honest, I am a little nervous, but I know uh, this is my first time actually creating my own podcast. So I just hope that uh, like everyone has a fun time listening to it. And I know we'll have a good time talking about the book that you had selected, a book that one of your favorite books that has never been adapted. So what is that book? So the book is The Girl in Times Square by Paulina Simons. And I just like to provide some insight here I am not a bibliophile, I'm not especially knowledgeable about literature, especially not in the way that Emily is. And so I've read a couple of classics. I can appreciate Dickens and Flaubert and a lot of the masters. But at the same time, I generally consume trash literature. And I'm not talking about Fifty Shades of Grey or dinosaur romance novels. It's not quite that depraved, but this is definitely a potboiler of sorts. I don't think that the author was necessarily aiming to craft a masterpiece here. And I just think it's fantastically entertaining. She throws in far too many characters, way too many plot twists and I could not put it down the first time I picked it up and read it. So then, uh, what is the plot of The Girl in Times Square? Oh, so there's a lot going on here, but the narrative centers around a young woman called Lily, and we're told she's very beautiful, but she doesn't really know what she's doing with her life. She is a student at City College, I believe, but she's also a bit of a layabout. And a lot of her family members, she comes from a a fairly wealthy background, I would say, and her family seems to have social connections. They are pressuring her to get her act together. Then she discovers that she's suffering from leukemia. And of course, this 
for obvious reasons, throws her plans into disarray. At the same time, she has to deal with a mysterious disappearance. And could the disappearance of someone very close to her be connected to one of her siblings? And then, at the same time, she starts a romance with an alcoholic... He's a private detective? Sorry, I forget exactly what sort of police officer slash investigator he is. But he's an elderly, not elderly, let's say middle-aged, older than her, uh, man who is battling a severe addiction to alcohol. They get involved sort of out of nowhere. We'll get into this. They meet a couple of times and then all of a sudden he's fantasizing about her. But they get involved and then there's also a backstory involving another mystery that he investigated years ago. So all of this is going on. Then you find out that the person who went missing was involved in a, a cult where these people went out into the desert and took peyote and cut each other's tongues out. So it, a lot happens, is what I'm saying. I can see that. Wow. Oof. Well, we're going to have a, well, I know we're going to have a very fun discussion about how you would adapt it. And so before we get started with the, my questions about how you would adapt it, my question is, why do you think it's never been adapted? I think a big part of it is that the plot is so convoluted and so overloaded with different plot details. And I don't think that that's necessarily a deal breaker in the case of all books. After all, John Grisham novels tend to be really overloaded with twists and colourful supporting characters. I just think that the issue with this one is that there's no real hook. There are so many different narrative strands that I think it would be very difficult to come up with, say, a tagline for it or to release a trailer for it that doesn't make people think, so hold on, what is this film? Why am I meant to be going to it? Is it a modern mystery? Is it a romance? Is it a drama about political corruption and the the atmosphere of New York in the 1990s? And it wants to be all those things. But I do think that when they adapt this sort of pot boiler, they generally want a simple premise that they can market to the public, even if the actual plot turns out to be a lot naughtier than people expect it to be. And I think you would have to significantly alter or pare down the plot of this film in order to make a two and a half hour thriller, for example. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, they did something similar with Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. And it's just so much like if you actually read the novel, there is so much going on in there. Because first, I mean, there's a murder mystery. And then there's uh, this girl, this beautiful girl who happens to be abandoned by her family in the marsh. 
and yet she is still clean and speaks eloquently. I, I don't know. And then, then you have this romance with not one, but two guys. So, and seeing the movie, they really cut out a lot of the murder mystery stuff and really focused more on the romance, which makes sense. Uh, when I did my movie review for book reviews by a chick who reads everything, I did mention about, oh yeah, this is like how marketable and predictable because of all that. I mean, considering it was one of the best-selling novels within the last five years and probably the best-selling novel probably ever at this point, it's not surprising that they would probably want to at least pick like one or two things that will hook the audience in and then just make sure you get enough money at the box office. Yes, and I think that is one of those issues that I think you tend to run into with these literary adaptations, where it does seem like it is just easier to fit more plot into a book in a way that feels natural, in a way where you can integrate this really flowery prose into your exposition and you can explain how you get from one point to another in a way that doesn't feel creaky or that doesn't leave the audience feeling bored. And I think with cinema being this audio-visual medium, if you have this incredibly plot-heavy narrative, it's very difficult to convey all of that through visual storytelling. And I haven't seen Where the Crawdads Sing yet, I'll admit, but I know one of the big complaints that I heard from fans of the novel was that it felt like they were taking the Nicholas Sparksy portions of the book and really making that the centre of the story when they saw it more as a character study about this young woman who is a lonely outsider in this intolerant society. Yes, and that's definitely a good point on that, mainly because they were just looking for something that was absolutely marketable. I mean, had they more focused on uh, Kaya being as a character study, I think the movie would have had a bit more momentum and more energy to it. But when I saw in the theaters, all I was thinking is, ah, these things, ah, this looks nice. Ah, this is a nice marketable movie. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, before we digress on where the crawdads sing, let's get back onto the girl in Times Square. So are you ready for the questions of how you would, if you were given the opportunity to adapt the girl in Times Square? How would you do it? So I have these five questions for you. Mm-hmm. Number one, which medium would suit the book the best? So this could be like a feature length movie or a TV series, even a musical or a radio drama or even a limited miniseries. So I think that it would work best as a miniseries in part because I just think that the book is not open-ended at its end and the issue that you get when they don't announce that it's a miniseries is that if it's successful they always decide to do a second season with a completely new narrative and it's almost never as good as the first season and I do think it would be even for a miniseries 
fairly lengthy just because, again, there's a lot to get through here. And I do think as a screenwriter, perhaps I would attempt to, instead of shifting the perspective so often, do individual episodes from the perspective of different characters. So you would have a Spencer-centric episode where it's all about his alcoholism and his tortured past. And then an episode that's all about Lily's inheritance and her learning that she has cancer. Instead of trying to stuff all of these different elements into individual episodes. So it would be a bit bifurcated in that sense. And I do worry, would you then lose the magic of the novel, which is sort of this, there are so many things that sort of shouldn't go together, all happening at once, and it feels crazy and uh, slapdash and haphazardly put together in a way that's sort of charming. At the same time, I do think that more linear, streamlined storytelling could probably help. So I think this miniseries is probably the best route to go down because feature film, ooh, it would have to be incredibly long <laughs> in order to get through any of this stuff. <laughs> and and I wouldn't be surprised if you're having flashbacks to For Whom the Bell Tolls. Oh, oh gosh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> From that. <laughs> that is something that should have been made into a miniseries, but not into a three-hour movie. No, absolutely not. But I'm glad you did bring up the idea of a miniseries and how um, when novels are turned into that, usually they have that second season. It just reminded me of, uh, have you seen the Flight Attendant series? No, I haven't, but I heard great things about it. People really loved Kaylee. Quoco's performance, which sort of surprised me because I feel like she's been a bit of a critical punching bag for years because of the Big Bang Theory. So, Yeah, I read the novel uh, a long time ago and I thought this was like a really amazing character study. Like our Cassie Bowen was probably going to go down as like probably one of the most interesting female characters that we'll have in contemporary literature. And when I found out that Kelly Quoco was going to adapt it into a miniseries, I was like, yes, yes, please. Now, sadly, I do not have HBO Max, so sadly, I have not watched it from, but I've also heard great things about it, but I was disappointed in finding out that there was a second season, and from looking at the plot synopsis of that, it's not related to the book. It's a completely different one, and I'm like, I mean, I'll still watch it. I mean, if I, when I find a way to do it. But yes, I am... I'm very glad you brought that up. And yes, I do think the miniseries would be a very good idea for it. I mean, from what I understand, it's a girl in Times Square sounds very convoluted as all much. And, or you could make like a, I don't know, you could do like the Hobbit and make three movies out of it. Yes, that would be interesting. Although I don't know if anyone loves the Hobbit trilogy, so maybe not. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, I mean, I still wonder uh, who the five armies are, and my best friend tries to explain it, and I'm like, now what are the five armies again? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's go on to the next question, shall we? So the next question revolves around the cast. Who would you cast 
as your leads and what other actors you would want in your uh, adaptation? So this was an interesting question in part because, and this is a dreadful thing to admit, but my fascination with actors largely extends back to previous eras and I'm not that invested in the careers of current hot young actors. So I sort of struggled to cast the younger roles within this (laughs) narrative, but for the lead character, Lily Quinn, I thought that Margaret Qualley would be quite a good choice. Perhaps she's a little too old to convince as a 24-year-old at this point, but I think she could pull it off if they tried not to make her look too mature. And I think she's generally very successful at playing Kello, reckless, slightly selfish women. I think that she's ethereally beautiful in the way that the character is meant to be in the novel. And her aimlessness, I think, could easily be conveyed by someone like Quali, who is able to project as an empty vessel without being a completely shallow, vacuous human being that the audience has no interest in. And then for Spencer O'Malley, so this actor, again, probably far too old for the role, but I thought that Harvey Keitel, perhaps, no, honestly, I think he could still do it. Yes, there would be a bigger age gap there, but I think that he can convincingly play a grizzled, haunted, tough guy. And he's very good at being emotionally vulnerable, but also violent and hot-tempered on screen. So I think he would be a good choice for that part. And then some of the supporting roles I struggled with just because a lot of these supporting players pop up for one or two chapters in the book and they do get to be incredibly dramatic during the one or two chapters in which they appear. But I was thinking, can you really get an A-list actor to play her resentful, avaricious sister? And I thought, oh, well, you probably can. So I thought Barbara Hershey could play her supportive grandmother. And then I suppose you would only have her roommate in flashbacks. So I thought maybe someone who, maybe this is mean, but who's sort of on the decline. So you could have a Kate Bosworth or something in the role. And then other parts such as her philandering brother. I thought that's sort of an interesting role for a young actor. And this is a bit of typecasting. He does commonly play this type of role where he's sort of a misogynist. He's overly confident. He overestimates his own abilities. But I think that Billy Magnuson would be quite convincing in that sort of part and could bring a touch of comedy to the role, which 
to be honest, I think an adaptation of this novel might need, but I love the fact that it's so melodramatic and campy, but I also think that you need a bit of self-awareness to leaven all of that out and to balance out all of the tonal inconsistencies. So I think that would be, I guess, the main cast. And then the rest of the roles, it's sort of a struggle to cast them just because, again, they make such brief appearances. So I feel like I would have to spend months figuring out, oh God, can this person show up for one scene and convince as someone who tries to convince her sister to kill herself? Well, I guess I have, since you mentioned about like you're not exactly familiar with actors of now, if you like were given the opportunity to cast any actor alive or dead, would that change anything? I think it would. And I, I would probably just cast actors from the 30s, which is my favorite decade of cinema in all of the roles. So you would end up with. Norma Shearer and Marlon Loy and Frederick March in the, in this miniseries. Now, that would be amazing. And some of those actors you mentioned for the contemporary ones, like uh, Margaret uh, Coyley, what's her name? Yes, Margaret Coyley. Yeah, I don't think, because uh, I know I'm not as familiar as a contemporary actors as maybe I should be, but yeah, I what is some of her work, like what has she done in the past? So she is Andy McDowell's daughter, and I think she's most famous at this point for having starred in the Netflix miniseries Made. She got an Emmy nomination for that, but she's also in the new Claire Denis film, Stars at Noon, which had a big buzzy premiere at Cannes. Mm. That's a big deal this year. And she seems to be, she works with a lot of auteurs at this point. Oh, I see. Well, I'll have to keep an eye out for her. Yes, she's very talented. Very good. Very good. Well, I do like your cast, especially the Harvey Keitel one. Yes, this will at least be a nice hook. So, So let's get on with the next question, shall we? So I... So who would write the screenplay? I know you mentioned like in your imaginary, you would be, but would you have the author involved with the screenplay or would you want to have someone else or just you alone writing the screenplay? I think the thing is, I was very conflicted about this, where I thought, do you get an outsider to come in and polish all of the flaws in the novel in a way? And do you get someone who is experienced in writing for cinema has this different medium and who knows how to take something from the page to the screen. At the same time, I thought, well, it sort of does have to be Paulina, though, because she does hit on this very specific tone that I think a more experienced, skilled writer, in a way, might not be able to get at. So I worry 
do you lose something if Paulina just works as a consultant? And I guess the best of both worlds would be that she's the primary screenwriter and then you get this very experienced hired hand to come in and consult for her and to maybe brush up on the bits of dialogue that sound a bit too literary to appear on screen. Oh, that's really good. Yeah. I mean, there is a reason why Ayn Rand wrote the screenplay for The Fountainhead. And I don't know how much, uh, oh, I mean, I don't know if there were other like consultants in that. I wouldn't be surprised, but oh, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> I mean, for those who don't know, uh, I will be uh, on the 300 Passions podcast again to talk about the movie version of The Fountainhead. And I was on there previously to talk about for whom the bell tolls. Hemingway. <laughs> yes. And I, I like to believe I've recovered from that. <laughs> okay. Uh, but yes, that is a very good point that you made about uh, having the author get involved with the screenplay. So, are you ready on for the next question? Yes. All right. So... Who would you like? Who would you want to get to direct it? Again, I was conflicted about this. Where I think a lot of the big directors that we revere nowadays are these. And sorry, I hate the term. I know I've already used it during this podcast, but or tour for lack of a better word, where they have this very recognisable style, they expect to have a high degree of control over the projects that they work on, and their voice as an artist tends to come through stronger than any of their collaborators on the projects that they work on. And thinking of this primarily as a Paulina Simons project, where the novel that she wrote already has this very strong authorial voice, I thought, well, do you just want to bring in a hired hand, essentially, who can just translate the novel to the screen instead of imprinting any of their own vision onto it? Because I do worry sometimes you get these cases in which these highly revered directors with their own recognizable personal style adapt these acclaimed masterpieces and the problem is that their personal style is in conflict with that of the author that they are adapting from and so you end up with these odd films that are half-baked Tony prestige literary adaptations, but that also contain these touches that remind you that, oh no, this director is trying to do something here. And so a lot of those films end up feeling completely mangled. And there were only really two directors that I settled on as decent options to direct. And I thought Kenneth Lonergan and Todd Haynes, and both of these directors 
are essentially our tools. So you might run up against that problem that I referenced, but both of them are so skilled when it comes to directing from a female perspective and specifically capturing what it feels like to be a young woman adrift in the world who doesn't know what her future looks like. And they're so empathetic as directors and that humanistic quality really comes through even though they're also capable of introducing bracing social commentary into their films. And I'm talking about them as though they're very similar filmmakers and they're really not. There are a lot of differences stylistically in terms of how they approach filmmaking. And I would honestly be interested to see what, well, to see both of them, I guess, tackle it, to see two different versions of this mini series, because I think that they would both bring uh, an interesting eye for detail to the project. Well, I see. Well, that is really amazing on that. I. Well, I do hope that uh, either director would actually get their hands on uh, The Girl in Times Square, because I don't know anything about these directors, but I'm sure that they sound really interesting, especially if they're really, uh, if they're really good at uh, taking it from a female point of view and actually making them very empathetic on that. Mm, definitely. Mm -hmm. And so we got one more question here, and that is, what are what other aspects do you think the adaptation needs to include? Well, I would be very upset if they removed the element of it being this character study more so than serving as a mystery. Where I said it is this jumble or blend of a whole lot of different genres but I would be frustrated if someone were to flatten these characters out in a way that robbed them of the sense that they are kooky and zany and larger than life in many ways. At the same time I would like it if the New York setting were emphasized in a lot of scenes and I would be upset as much as I complained that there might even be too many characters if they chose to cut it down and they excised some of the characters who seemed less necessary to the plot. Hmm. And what makes you say about, about the second part? I'm really curious about that. Sorry, about which part? about cutting uh, the secondary characters because they had so much of a possible Oscar nomination. <laughs> yes, yes, that would be funny. But I do just worry they would think, oh, well, do you really need this scene? And personally, for me, the most compelling aspects of the book are the chapters that involve her conflict with her family. And I think you need these scenes where she's having a chat with her grandmother and talking about her doubts over the career path that she has chosen to pursue. And I think if you get rid of that, even though it's not strictly necessary to push the plot forward, that creates a real 
problem for me because those are the parts of the book that differentiate it from other novels that focus on a similar subject matter. Ah, that makes a lot of sense. And I also wanted to add one thing. Uh, when I had talked to you about on, on Twitter, I also suggested maybe having the soundtrack kind of similar to like a Max Steiner score, like having it very melodramatic, but also like being in tune with the environment. Because mm-hmm. it's like, it, may, it doesn't have to be gone with the wind, but I think like having more like a New York kind of like, if you have more like jazz kind of ensemble, like you could actually bring out New York as a character and like yeah. bring, bring out that environment. Uh, yes. Ah, uh, well, that seems like, well, you know what? From what you described, I probably would pay money to actually see The Girl in Times Square if it ever comes out as a miniseries. I hope it does. I hope someone chooses to adapt it, even if it ends up being a train wreck. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, hey, they might listen to this podcast and think, you know what? That's a good idea. I have to call the Zeta short person to actually uh, consult about this. She really loves this book. Yes. Who knows? <laughs> yes. And so... Before we go, I do have another question to ask you. What are some other books that you're reading right now? Oh, so in tandem with reading this novel in order to prepare for this podcast, I chose to go back and read some of Simons's other work just in order to jog my memory And I did read a lot of these when I was in high school. So it was a bit nostalgic in a way to remember being 14 and reading these incredibly overblown, overcooked bits of melodrama. But one of her novels that I remember feeling very conflicted about was The Bronze Horseman, which is arguably her most successful book and it's more traditional than the other novels in terms of its narrative where it's basically a young girl uh, living in Russia during World War II or sorry the Soviet Union at the time Uh, she falls in love with a soldier but they can't be together because he's dating her sister and then they both need to survive so that's fairly traditional as far as these war-based romances go. But I remember there being probably her finest passages of writing in the midsection of that novel where she's just describing the day-to-day life of the main character in the midst of the siege of Leningrad. And it's this really riveting section of the novel in which she manages to, in what I felt was an accurate manner, convey what it feels like to be at your wit's end, essentially, and just struggling to hold on, struggling to survive, attempting to keep the home fires burning at a time when it feels like it would honestly be a better proposition to just give up kill yourself and end the suffering and I really appreciated that section of the novel 
in part because the main character is very infantilized. In other sections of the book, we constantly hear about the fact that she's incredibly skinny and she looks incredibly young and she's the most innocent, winsome girl that the main character has ever come across. And she grows a backbone in this section of the book and really grows into womanhood in a way that I found to be fascinating. And other than that, the rest of the novel is a bit of a wash. Her writing style is really repetitive. I don't think that she manages to convey how wonderful it feels to be in love or to be infatuated with a person. The two main characters are deeply unlikable and you end up being sympathetic towards her sister, whom you're meant to hate, because I'm sorry, her younger sister is trying to steal her boyfriend out from under her. Of course she has a right to be upset about that. Mm-hmm. I see. Well, that does sound... And what was the name of the title again? The Bronze Horseman. The Bronze Horseman. That does sound nice. Well, uh, thank you for being on this podcast to talk about The Girl in Times Square. And where can we find you? So I'm on Twitter at Zeta underscore short, and the podcast is at 300 Passions. All right. Well, thank you for for coming on to this podcast. we I really had a fun time talking with you. And since this is a very new podcast, we I will have this up on anywhere where you can find your podcast. And also, you can also find uh, the Adapt Me podcast on Twitter under the uh, handle Adapt Me Podcast. And you can also find me on book reviews from a chick who reads or book reviews from a chick who reads everything on chickwhoreadseverything.com. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter under EJB0092 and Instagram with the handle Emily underscore Blakowski because I still haven't had my dating name. So I hope everyone has, everyone have a great time. And also remember, reading is fundamental. All right, have fun and have a wonderful day. <laughs> <laughs>